Welcome back, everyone, to episode 18. Uh, today's discussion is with a good friend, a person who's been through a lot in recent years, who's lived uh, much of his life in the Syrian town of Aleppo, Omar Abdel Aziz Halaj. He's joining us today from Beirut, Lebanon which is uh, another place that's undergoing quite a bit of turmoil at the moment. Just to put everything into context, of course, uh, today turns out to be the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp, uh, which was the beginning of the end of the Nazi regime in Germany and throughout Europe and beyond. And it's another poignant reminder of the cruelty which can be meted out by human beings against other human beings and how we need finally once and for all to deal with this horrible tendency of the human race to be able to reduce other human beings into categories of the other which allows horrible things to occur. And if we needed a reminder of still how far we have to go before reaching the ultimate point of a truly unified human race, there's, of course, the ultimate objective of the Jointly Venturing podcast and Oneness World, its host. Uh, We need look no further than what has occurred in the territory of Syria since the war began there in 2011. Um, we are speaking about a situation almost too horrible to imagine for people that have not endured it personally. Maybe 400,000 people have been killed directly. Another 1.5 million people died who would have not otherwise died had there not been the conflict in place. Out of a total population of 21 million, 10% of the population has perished. There are more than 6 million refugees from that country today spread all across the world, particularly in the immediate Middle East region, and a further 10 million people who are internally displaced inside Syria still unable to return to their homes and lands from which they were uh, displaced. So we are as far as we could possibly be from finding a sustainable, peaceful solution to that conflict. And we're going to get a whole range of perspectives from Aziz today about um, how he sees the conflict now um, and what some of the pathways might be towards uh, a, a brighter and more peaceful, more prosperous, more equitable future for everyone who is in or linked to Syria. So with that, I'd, I'm very happy to uh, welcome Omar Abdil. Abdul Aziz, let me say that again, Omar Abdelaziz Halaj, who's speaking to us today from Beirut, Lebanon. So welcome, Aziz. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, It's very nice talking to you and always a pleasure to connect and uh, uh, learn from your wisdom. Uh, We've uh, had uh, some very fruitful discussions in the past on the issue of uh, housing, land and property in the time of conflict. And uh, I think um, that was a, uh, uh, kind of like a learning experience for me uh, to read some of your books and uh, understand some of the challenges we're going to have to face in Syria. 
Oh, well, thank um, you very much. I'm glad you like them. <laughs> I just wish governments would comply with my ideas more often. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing with government. So uh, very often uh, they think in very limited uh, territorial interests and uh, uh, fail to see the implications either on the micro scales on communities or on the larger scale on a global level. So I think your uh, podcast to look at global issues, but from a uh, local perspective is, is a very interesting one. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Well, absolutely. It's great to have you here. And, you know, our, our ultimate objective, of course, with this podcast is to, you know, introduce listeners from all around the world to people who are living in all corners of this world. And through that, hopefully, allow ever-growing numbers of people to see that, you know, the, the things that we share, our similarities are so much infinitely greater than our differences, and that we're a lot closer. Indeed. You know, we're a lot closer to achieving a truly unified world than people realize. And it's, it's tragedies like Syria, like climate change, like the recent bushfires in Australia, which burned almost 30 million acres of land in the last few weeks, and all of the other things that kind of allow people to stand back for a moment and reassess um, the way that we organize ourselves politically and all of the ramifications that can have if uh, leaders want to stay in power longer than they're welcomed or uh, just the manner by which contemporary politics, contemporary nation states and the system in which they exist tend to facilitate or attract um, types of leaders around the world who really should not be in those positions of leadership because they're essentially there not out of wanting to act in the public interest or to be a public servant, but to be a servant to themselves. And that's, that's a phenomenon that's affecting very many countries at the moment. And, you know, it, it, viewed from a hopeful perspective, we can see that as the sort of end phase of the, the, and the, and the associated toxicity with the end of an evolutionary political phase, whereby the next step almost by its very nature, has to be one that's truly global um, in nature. So even though probably most people would never link the whole concept of world citizenship to a, a conflict such as Syria, do you think that has any uh, role to play in facilitating a solution? Are there, are there many Syrians that you know um, who have thought about that question? And, and how do you think it could play itself out in, in the region more broadly? Well, I mean, Scott, uh, the position and what's happening in Syria today is not new. Um, if you want to understand a little bit uh, where things stand, uh, we have to go back about 100 years ago mm -hmm. um, when the state of Syria was first uh, formed after the uh, uh, breaking down of the Ottoman Empire. And when uh, a Brit and a French uh, uh, gentlemen uh, sat at a table in uh, 1916 and decided to draw that line in the sand and define their areas of influence and created the impetus for uh, nation states that lacked all the uh, 
critical elements of uh, being independent nation state. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, they had uh, fostered um, uh, territorial boundaries that were against the logic of uh, the economy, against the logic of social networks, against the logic even of environmental uh, and water resources flows. Uh, uh, and that created the seed for uh, long-term conflicts to come, uh, with a few cities in the region uh, holding the key to economic growth and to uh, a political power, and leaving the rest of the uh, terrain pretty much disenfranchised as a backyard to mobilize uh, economic and political resources uh, for uh, national elites. Uh, so, in a sense, we cannot uh, look at the conflict in Syria and or any other place in the Arab world today in isolation of that uh, uh, formative uh, moment, uh, a moment that coincided also with a lot of injustice to uh, many uh, social groups and populations, uh, whether be it uh, indigenous populations uh of different and uh, uh, specific ethnicities or sectarian uh, origins, or uh, even of um, uh, linguistic and uh, uh, class uh, uh, kind of specificities. Uh, So everything from uh, the uh, national aspirations of Palestinians that were uh, denied their statehood to mm-hmm. the Kurds, uh, uh, to uh, different minorities being treated as uh, uh, second-hand citizens, uh, uh, or sometimes uh, uh, being created as or placed as first-class citizens uh, to disenfranchise majorities. Uh, in all cases, um, we have uh, had an unnatural uh, emergence of the nation state in our uh, part of the world. And a lot of right. our conflicts today are born out of that um, reality. Well, that's a very, very um, important series of points you make because, you know, sovereignty, the sovereign the sovereign state of the world is the cornerstone of the it's the bedrock of the international legal system, right? Um, every single Indeed. state is sovereign, and therefore m- other states should not meddle in the affairs of that sovereign state. That's how this principle of sovereignty is very often looked at, you know, increasingly so, as, as there's a further retreat from engagement with international mechanisms. But I think one of the really important points you make is not only the arbitrary nature of the lines that were drawn on those maps uh, in the uh, uh, Pico-Sykes Agreement and and the uh, Treaty of Lausanne um, in the in the early part of the uh, 20th century, um, but also how sacrosanct borders are in this world, and how people will go to such extraordinary lengths to protect borders, which really did not exist at all a hundred years ago. So how do we deal with that point? Well, I mean, um, maybe I give a, a bit of a background of myself to eliminate uh, where <laughs> we came from, and then we'll talk about how we go uh, uh, to uh, 
to discuss where we go from here. Sure. Um, I come from a family in Aleppo where uh, on the one side, uh, my grandfather comes from uh, an Arab uh, descent, but from a family that migrated to Syria about 400 years ago from Iraq. Wow. And his wife is uh, uh, basically a descendant of a Turkish uh, uh, kind of bourgeois uh, urban uh, Aleppine. Uh, my mother's side, uh, there's Circassian and Turk uh, blood in them. And um, in a sense, if you look at uh, the family genealogy, we go all the way into the region. So right. uh, at some point, there was that universal um, uh, regional culture uh, where um, in my hometown, people spoke uh, uh, dialect mixed with Turkish and Persian. In uh, other places, there were dialects that were closer to uh, the Jordanian and the Saudi uh, uh, accents rather than to the uh, typical Levantine uh, uh, accents. Um, in the East, so there are people who don't speak Arabic at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in my hometown, uh, there's a very large uh, Kurdish minority that. Uh, hardly ever speaks uh, Arabic except uh, in formal transactions. Uh, their main uh, language uh, is uh, either uh, Kurdish or Turkoman. Uh, so it was a very rich culture that has over hundreds of years uh, evolved to um, develop its own normative frameworks and its own uh, modes of negotiation between uh, different communities. Um, we can't really say it was a peaceful coexistence because the region has had uh, many um, strifes and programs in the past. Uh, but uh, there was mechanisms through which the this region self-readjusted after each one of those problems. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, with the advent of the nation state, a lot of those uh, local self-adjustment mechanisms that uh, uh, bargained back every time there was local conflict uh, that uh, renegotiated the terms of social cohesion uh, at every juncture and every time there was a crisis. Uh, All of these functions were usurped by the nation state. And Mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent, uh, uh, local elites were uh, slowly uh, alienated from their positions as brokers of local negotiations. And uh, a new class of elites um, emerged in capitals, uh, very often distant from where conflicts were brewing. And uh, uh, resorting to force uh, uh, to subdue uh, conflict rather than uh, uh, resorting to uh, wise uh, uh, local practices uh, to sort of mitigate uh, conflict before they grew out of hand. Um, so the nation state, in a sense, was an essential element to mobilize resources on a grander scale, lead the development project uh, beyond the capacity of local elites to actually mobilize uh, such resources uh, for the benefit of the greater population. And we cannot deny that the nation state at some point had a major role to play in uh, actually uh, bringing literacy to rural areas, bringing uh, basic infrastructures to populations, 
uh, to mobilize uh, 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 health and uh, uh, other uh, important uh, developmental issues. But uh, that came at an expense of uh, subduing local agency and um, uh, by creating uh, patronage networks where the state uh, was uh, dominant. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, the, the nation states have a mixed legacies in our part of the world, but unfortunately the negative aspects of that nation state started just uh, accumulating. Mm -hmm. And the uh, central power elites um, uh, no longer really cared about uh, dealing with those problems, and those problems were kind of uh, pushed under the rug uh, for so many years that eventually they started brewing and festering and eventually uh, blew up. In 2010, um, there was, uh, uh, at the time, I was uh, uh, the CEO of uh, one of the largest uh, NGOs in Syria. It was uh, one of those NGOs that had the patronage of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were trying to uh, break into uh, the local uh, uh, community to um, discover uh, afresh how we can uh, uh, build local capacities to lead the development process. Mm -hmm. um, but we faced a major competition and major uh, resistance from traditional state institutions that um, really uh, did not want uh, to move in that direction. In, in that critical period between 2006 to 2009, 10, mm -hmm. most Arab states witnessed uh, an unprecedented youth bulge. Uh, populations that were 20 to 24 years old of age uh, reached their peak. Uh, a peak that they have never had before, and they will probably never reach again. Right. In places like Syria, that population reached an approximate uh, uh, 12 percent uh, uh, by some estimate of the population. That means uh, 10 percent or 12 percent of the population were in need of uh, housing. Uh, they were in need of jobs. They were in need, most of importantly, uh, uh, of uh, being heard and a mm -hmm. political voice. Mm -hmm. um, and that, as you well know, uh, coincided with the 2007-2008 um, financial crisis that turned into a global economic crisis. Uh, most countries in the region uh, shrunk uh, their investment programs and went on a uh, tight, uh, uh, tightening the belt type uh, uh, policies to meet the challenges of uh, uh, the economic crisis right when you had a major youth bulge um, happening and you had uh, to accommodate millions of young people into the job market and into the uh, 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 the uh, political sphere and into the housing market. Um, and that created, in a sense, a condition for a perfect storm. Right, right. Um, where young people just um, uh, coming out of schools, uh, for the most part, um, uh, this coming out of schools uh, was happening for the first time on such a scale because uh, uh, 
the governments in the region have encouraged a lot of uh, education programs. They did it for two reasons. One is to naturally support um, uh, education in their countries, but at the same time, it was a convenient uh, uh, alternative to job creation, uh, a much cheaper uh, alternative to job creation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of educated young people uh, were getting into the job market right at the time when the markets were crashing. And you can trace it invariably in every country in the region that went through the Arab Spring. Uh, the youth population was at its highest peak. Um, and in a sense, there's a noticeable statistical difference between countries that went into the Arab Spring and those that managed to mitigate the, that wave without going into conflict. The, the, the main statistical difference between them is the uh, percentage of youth in their population. Right, fascinating. So, uh, at that critical stage, um, uh, issues like housing uh, become particularly very critical um, because um, housing is not just about buying a home. It's about independence. It's about uh, uh, being able to leave the patriarchal sphere and uh, going in to establish your own uh, family. Uh, it is about financial independence. It's about, um, uh, you know, being able to have a presence in the community. Uh, so all of these things were denied to that generation of young people. And uh, this is when conditions were ripe for uh, explosion. Uh, many of the young people started asking themselves, why are we in this situation? And uh, unfortunately, uh, governments in the region um, only saw uh, conspiracy and external intrigue uh, rather than seeing uh, the rightful voices of young people wanting to uh, express themselves. And rather Mm -hmm. than opening an earnest uh, dialogue with their youth, um, they uh, actually uh, went on a policy of, uh, uh, at best, uh, kind of like coercion, and in many other cases, it was uh, overt uh, uh, repression. And that uh, naturally instigated uh, uh, the militarization of many of the uprisings and uh, um, I wouldn't deny that in such conditions, uh, uh, the the good neighbors in the Arab countries, uh, the the political forces uh, in each country were kind of couldn't wait to uh, support the intrigue in their neighbors' countries. But uh, the main drive should not be overlooked. The main drive are youth communities and youth populations that uh, uh, needed uh, better futures. They needed better prospects. Um, Syria is one of those places where uh, throughout the uh, decades from 2000 to 2010 had witnessed some economic liberalization. The GDP was uh, growing relatively steadily at 4 to 5%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a sense, nobody expected uh, Syria to be hit uh, specifically uh, uh, as things were in a sense, on the surface, not bad. But then when we look into the details, uh, we see a lot of um, 
unequal distribution of resources geographically between regions, uh, where some regions uh, like Damascus were getting the lion's share uh, of public spending and investment. So almost uh, two-thirds of the GDP of the greater Damascus region uh, was comprised of government spending, mm-hmm. whereas in other places uh, that uh, government spending was uh, a fraction in the eastern part of the country. Uh, uh, the government was spending probably about uh, uh, no more than $200 uh, per year per capita in terms of uh, uh, public spending those areas. Uh, that's like a, less than a quarter of what was being spent in Damascus. Right. Naturally, when ISIS took over the oil fields and diverted some of the revenues uh, uh, from the oil fields and from external resources, it wasn't hard to beat uh, that benchmark. Uh, $200 per capita per year is not a big number to beat. And ISIS uh, uh, actually captured uh, a lot of uh, willing populations uh, because it was able to provide uh, such a meager uh, alternative to the uh, central state. So their their public uh, so, spending was uh, on the other hand was greater than the Syrian government's public spending in the areas that they controlled. Is that what you're saying? Uh, in, in many of the rural areas, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they were able to distribute uh, through tribal patronage networks. Right, um, right. The kind of uh, um, funding uh, levels that were um, already being spent. Uh, by the central state, particularly in the rural areas. Um, they captured a lot of uh, um, uh, tribal uh, loyalties that way. Right. Now, but by the way, just for uh, listeners who don't know that much about Syria, what, what percent of the country is now under the control of the national uh, government? Um, I mean... Uh, the question has always been problematic because people look at the geography and one has to actually look at population. Syria right, has right. two-thirds of a desert, so whoever was controlling the desert was controlling territory but no population. Right, right. Um, so the government of Syria has always retained uh, the control over at least 55% of the population inside the country. So it was never uh, below 55%? Was that the lowest? Uh, in terms of population. Right. In terms of territory, uh, they shrunk at certain points to something close to 40% of the territory. Right. Uh, but right. in terms of population, they always retained uh, over 55 And now they're controlling um, uh, probably as much as 70% uh, of the remaining population, probably even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to tell uh, because uh, the remaining population figure is still, uh, as you had mentioned, there's a lot of uh, displacement and there's a lot of refugees and a lot of people going back and forth. So they come in regularly to check on their uh, properties and leave again. So uh, it's very hard to determine who is effectively uh, a refugee or not. But uh, uh uh, to a certain extent, the Syrian government still retains uh, uh, probably over 70, probably I would say 75% of the population, remaining population is in the, uh, under the control of the Syrian government. Right. And, um, uh, you know, the 
the public is generally led to believe that had the Russian government not intervened on the side of the government, the outcome may have been different. Do you have any views on that? Uh, it's very hard to uh, to assess, uh, but I'd rather to postpone that point just a little bit and go back to the initial uh, issues about how the government distributed resources, because it's very telling about how we're going to be able to reconstruct the country at a later stage. Okay, maybe that, and then also just uh, just the question of you know the, it's in uh, in I work a lot in the field of climate change, and there's often the view put forward that elements and and effects of climate change were also part of the reason for the instigation of the Arab Spring across the board, but also in Syria. So can you comment on that too? Do you see any link between sure. changes to the sure. uh, the environment and climate change and the emergence of the, um, the conflict? Sure. Um, uh, I mean, in principle, disparities in public spending go uh, deeper into the nature of every locality in Syria. There's disparities between spending in the urban areas and the rural areas. Um, mm -hmm. And that goes for all of Syria. Our rural communities were disenfranchised across the board, uh, which um, in a way um, uh, encouraged uh, uh, rural to urban uh, migration uh, en masse before the conflict, but uh, more so during the conflict. Over nine years of fighting, uh, Syria moved from being uh, 55 or 54 percent uh, urban to now uh, being close to 75 or 80 percent uh, urban. Wow. Uh, that is a major transformation uh, on many levels. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, to a certain extent, within the same cities, even the bigger cities, government spending between neighborhoods uh, varied a lot. Uh, government spending on uh, particular projects that uh, supported local elites um, and supported local uh, uh, patronage networks uh, often um, kind of left uh, many communities, even in the most uh, uh, prosperous cities, uh, left uh, great populations that were uh, disenfranchised on the uh, perimeters of uh, and the peri-urban areas of uh, major cities. So it mm -hmm. is no wonder that when the conflict erupted, it erupted from specifically those very urban areas. Um, towns that were uh, 30 years ago, small towns of maybe 10,000 people or 15,000 people, had by uh, 2011, 2012 become urban uh, settlements of over 100 or 150,000 people. Mm -hmm. But still with the infrastructure and the administrative capacity of a small town. Uh, that is also part of the uh, kind of uh, growing resentment on the disparity of uh, uh, government attention. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 20 years before the conflict, most of the urban growth was being absorbed in the larger cities. Mm -hmm. But in the last uh, 20 years before the conflict, the trend started shifting. And... Um, uh, it was the small and medium towns, particularly those on the uh, fringes of the major metropolitan areas that uh, uh, were absorbing the major majority of urban growth. Now, naturally, right. uh, the state was unable to provide infrastructure, to provide urban planning services, 
and many people settled in informal areas. Uh, those informal areas became uh, like complete neighborhoods, and people vested in them uh, major investments um, uh, to grow them into viable communities. But um, some people in the uh, central authorities never recognized that creative potential of communities and instead looked at these areas um, with a negative uh, language. It wasn't um, unheard of to talk about the cancer growth of uh, informal areas. Right, um, right. Well, Syria was the not creative the... Oh, Syria was not the... Of, uh, exactly. Uh, Syria was not different than many other places in that regard. Exactly. Uh, and... In the conflict, uh, some people in the central government started getting the bright idea uh, that, uh, well, since these areas uh, uh, are uh, damaged or uh, uh, lost some of their population or whatever, well, that's a grand opportunity to actually erase those areas and develop uh, more uh, prime real estate uh, closer to the uh, central areas. And in a sense, uh, use that opportunity to uh, make uh, uh, some money for uh, local municipalities that uh, uh, were obviously no longer able to capitalize on the central government funding because the central government uh, could no longer afford to support local municipalities. So in mm -hmm. a sense, uh, the conflict itself created dynamics that would sustain conflict. Uh, that would empower local elites that were benefiting from conflict. And the state gradually had to uh, somehow uh, outsource uh, basic stabilization and security and even governance uh, to such local uh, elites, often uh, emerging uh, war profiteers or militia leaders or, uh, uh, you know, uh, even sometimes... Uh, uh, foreign militia uh, that were uh, settling uh, in Syria. Uh, likewise, on the er in the areas that were uh, controlled by forces other than the central government, uh, the war economy created uh, uh, very interesting dynamics um, in terms of empowering the more radical elements because they were able to uh, basically uh, establish uh, uh, territorial linkages, whereas civilian and pacific uh, political uh, forces uh, were disenfranchised and uh, uh, donors funding um, very often uh, uh, came uh, too little too late and very often um, in terms of very localized interventions um, that would uh, not be uh, sufficient to establish uh, uh, civilian leadership uh, at the helm of the political ladder in those areas. So what we have seen is uh, radical forces emerging as the uh, the main controller of the economy, the main controller of uh, livelihoods, and even infrastructure. Um, mm -hmm. Likewise, in the Northeast, um, the absence of the central government has uh, enabled um, uh, um, kind of a forceful uh, intervention on the part of one uh, Kurdish party to uh, uh, dominate the scene mm -hmm. and forge a new form of governance, uh, which has had some positive uh, 
transformations on how local communities deal with their problems, but also on a larger scale, it's replicated very often the same governance mistakes of the central government. Um, right. So across the Syrian territory, what we have is a weakening nation state uh, that is able to control things still uh, through uh, holding the reins on sovereignty in the sense that in the Security Council, it is still being considered the legitimate uh, uh, authority in the country mm-hmm. um, uh, that, um, uh, to a certain extent, uh, Interpol recognizes its passport and not uh, alternative uh, documentation mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that um, the international order uh, recognizes its borders and its uh, legitimate claims to uh, hold on to border crossings, which are, by the way, during conflict times, one of the major uh, income generating uh, uh, points in, in the country because uh, uh, most of the goods going into the country um, have to go through uh, those crossing points and uh, levies and taxes are being collected uh, mm-hmm. to the benefit of uh, armed actors across the board. Right, right, so, right, right. Uh, nine years down the line, um, we have still the semblance of national institutions, mm-hmm. uh, still the aura of legitimacy, um, but uh, very often the substance um, is lacking. And to a certain extent, um, uh, the fragile system received a final blow a couple of months ago when the uh, Lebanese economy, neighboring uh, mm-hmm. economy, collapsed. Mm-hmm. And that created a rush on the uh, U.S. dollar uh, in Lebanon. And uh, you could see the impact almost exactly uh, following uh, the next day in Syria, where the Syrian pound uh, eventually collapsed. Because in a sense, uh, the Syrian government could not create sufficient barriers uh, uh, between Lebanon and Syria on an economic level. Uh, its sovereignty could no longer uh, sustain uh, an independent uh, 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 currency market. Uh, and in a sense, the borders are no longer able to uh, withstand the collapse of a neighboring econo- economy. And uh, uh, we have seen um, immediately afterwards the Syrian economy uh, going into greater and greater difficulty. So, uh, like right. the uh, Syrian pound collapsed uh, over forty um, percent uh, or fifty percent of its value uh, in the last uh, three months. Wow! On top of everything else. Yeah, on top of everything else. So this year, um, we are for the first time in Syria. I mean, there has been a lot of hardship. Uh, there's a lot of suffering. Uh, a lot of refugees. A lot of IDPs. A lot of people living in tents, a lot of people living under uh, uh, very unsafe conditions. Uh, but this year, for the first time, we are seeing the uh, prospects of a large-scale famine. Uh, in the past, uh, problems were often localized. People were displaced, but soon uh, humanitarian aid was able to reach them uh, or uh, relatives were able to send uh, uh, little remittances, uh, which remain 
one of the largest inputs into the Syrian economy today. Um, but um, as we stand today, this is the first year we can probably uh, really have to ring the uh, the bells uh, and warning of a major famine taking place in the country. Oh, that's horrible. And is that nationwide oh. or is it concentrated in certain areas? It will be most likely nationwide because uh, the collapse of the currency is happening everywhere. Some areas will fare a little bit better than others, but pockets of poverty are everywhere. So even in Damascus, the most prosperous capital city uh, in Syria, there are many pockets of poverty inside the city. Uh, but in rural areas, in refugee camps, in uh, uh, migrant communities, even in uh, uh, remaining communities that were not displaced, everybody this year uh, is on the brink. And unfortunately, mm. uh, coinciding this with the increased sanctions uh, is just not going to uh, help the situation. Though the sanctions have humanitarian exemptions, uh, the sanctions have created the uh, secondary uh, impacts, uh, and particularly now with the Caesar Act, uh, these impacts are likely to uh, discourage even the humanitarian actors from uh, going in because the the difficulty of establishing humanitarian uh, uh, boundaries uh, is, are very difficult. Uh, and mm-hmm. very often the channels of uh, channeling um, uh, funding into Syria, financing uh, projects, even humanitarian projects, have to go through banks. And for the most part, uh, banks are very risk averse. And uh, uh, the risk aversion of banks is the compiling to the impact of the sanctions. Um, of course. Mm-hmm. Some people may be congratulating themselves that finally they are receiving or getting political uh, outcomes out of the sanctions. Unfortunately, I don't see it that way. I see the sanctions as uh, uh, actually uh, weakening the ability of uh, populations to have resilience and to withstand uh, the uh, the impacts of the war and to, uh, in a sense, the only actors that will not be severely affected are the armed actors. Um, those are the ones that will be able to survive because they have the power to survive, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the um, Regular communities, peaceful communities, civilians uh, will be uh, completely disenfranchised. So, in reality, the transformations that are being created are making people more dependent on the armed actors and on the armed actors' uh, uh, favors and uh, patronage than before. Um, right. So, it, it remains to be seen, but um, uh, I think. Um, I can't really, I mean, I'm standing here in Beirut. I'm in the comfort of a home uh, with um, some heating and water and electricity. Um, it is very hard to imagine how hard this winter has already been and how hard it's going to still be uh, on Syrians everywhere. Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, what if you I'm could sorry. go back in time... 10 years. Let's imagine you stepped in a time machine 10 years ago. Could could anything have been done to prevent this conflict from going in the horrible direction it went? I think many things could have uh, been done 
in hindsight, uh, uh, the government could have been a bit more understanding of the nature of the uh, popular demand and uh, engaging in a genuine dialogue rather than the uh, kind of uh, charades that they have created um, uh, to basically uh, make believe that uh, uh, they uh, they are doing uh, genuine reforms. I was involved myself in the early years in trying to to push for uh, major reforms on many levels during those uh, first two years of the conflict, mm-hmm. um, and worked uh, extensively on uh, things like the local governance law and the uh, basically they call it the local administration law and on the uh, NGO. Uh, law and uh, on various other reform initiatives. And unfortunately, there were forces uh, in the system that were bigger than the reform forces. Uh, I wouldn't negate that there were reform uh, uh, efforts uh, ongoing, but uh, uh, those forces that were uh, more uh, conservative and more resistant to change were, at the end of the day, more convincing uh, to the authority and to the decision-making process. Um, Syria has always been a conflict-prone uh, uh, country, and uh, in a sense, uh, the top elite saw this as a, a continuation in their broader uh, battle on a regional scale, particularly in their confrontation with Israel. And they saw that this is an inopportune time to provide concessions. And unfortunately, that was a, a missing point. The West uh, misread uh, a lot of the vital signs of the conflict in Syria and presumed that uh, if they applied the same kind of pressures that were applied in other places in a cut-and-paste manner, that Syria would uh, follow suit. Unfortunately, right. neither Syria did, nor other countries did any better. Uh, That's true. <laughs> as a result, as a result, today, uh, we have a, a black hole uh, across the globe of uh, several countries that have gone into conflict. Uh, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Iraq. Uh, now, uh, we don't know the prospects of Sudan. Uh, um, hopefully not, but Algeria is on the brink. Uh Mm-hmm. Most of the countries in the region have used uh, the last bit of their resilience to deal with the first wave of Arab Spring. And uh, in a way, uh, they did it in a very um, uh, patrimonial way still, rather than creating a new development opportunities and new social contracts with their communities. They did it by expanding spending on um uh, non-productive sectors and on rent-seeking uh, elites, local elites, rather than on uh, renegotiating the social contracts with their young people. Mm-hmm. The region is um, moving ahead into another uh, youth bulge in 2032 to 2035. Not as big as the one that took place in 2006 to 2009, but... Uh, almost comparable in that um, it will be affecting uh, populations mainly concentrated in cities, 
cities will have a lot less resources at their hand to deal with the impact of the youth population. Radicalization is increasing because of falling levels of education. Uh, um, uh, national debts have grown to gigantic uh, uh, percentages. Uh, so like in Lebanon, we're already seeing, and in Jordan, we're already seeing um, the impact of borrowing on the ability of these countries to service that and still at the same time provide meager development opportunities for their population. In 10 years, um, these countries are going to fall further into that and uh, are going to uh, be less uh, capable of absorbing the youth bulge that's going to hit them in about 12, 13 years time from now. Um, oh likewise, goodness. environmental indicators are... Um, uh, going down the drain on all levels, um, not just water uh, and air, uh, but um, and uh, desertification. Uh, Syria uh, witnessed some uh, few years of drought before the conflict, and that um, caused a significant, uh, though it's probably not the determining factor in the conflict at first in Syria, but it was a significant contribution to the conflict drivers. Mm-hmm. Well, that same factor is now threatening other places in the region. And um, desertification is uh, spreading across the uh, the whole uh, terrain. But more than the uh, negative environmental uh, transformations that are happening, it's also the uh, deterioration of resilient elements of cities to deal with those uh, uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, there's uh, uh, little capacity to handle rising waters, and many coastal cities are uh, endangered in, over the next decade. Um, the um, uh, design of uh, cities, even in the richest countries in the region like Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, uh, is so much dependent on the vehicles that the trend, uh, if it continued uh, non-stop within 15 to 20 years, Saudi Arabia would be a net importer of energy rather than an exporter uh, of energy. You can understand the ramifications for that on a country that has little other economic uh, uh, motors for its GDP growth. Um, the uh, 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 intra-regional uh, resilience mechanisms that can provide uh, an incentive against conflict, uh, such as trade and uh, uh, travel and uh, uh, commercial networks and uh, uh, productive value chains are all being disrupted and falling apart. Uh, Arab, intra-Arab trade uh, and uh, trade in the region is shrinking uh, drastically and will likely continue to shrink. More importantly, the ability of the region to uh, distribute rents uh, from oil uh, is going to be limited as oil prices are uh, shrinking um, on the overall. And uh, uh, as competition between uh, oil and gas uh, energy uh, is uh, driving prices down uh, across the globe. Uh, So we're likely to see a region within uh, 10 to 15 years going into another major crisis. And unfortunately, we should not just be looking at what should have happened 10 years ago, but we need to ask ourselves, what do we need to do today 
to prevent that coming crisis. Europe and the West, and uh, on the one hand, uh, the countries that are trying to forge the Euro-Asian uh, uh, line of support, Russia, China, uh, India, Iran, uh, and Turkey, on the other hand, uh, are uh, in a zero-sum uh, battle uh, and are really uh, pushing things to the limit in our region, which is, uh, happens to be in the midst of uh, all of that uh, conflict. Uh, so we're likely to see uh, collapse on a major scale, something that would make the Arab Spring look like a walk in the park in comparison within 10 to 15 years, unless oh. uh, we move into a different kind of politics. Uh, we go back to multilateralism. We go back to understanding the UN system not as a country to protect sovereignty, but to uh, create multilateral uh, uh, approaches across sovereignties to deal with the future problems. Uh, to say that we're going to get rid of boundaries and borders altogether is probably unrealistic. But to continue using boundaries and borders as a pretext to avoid the collective uh, effort needed to save uh, millions of people in the future is got to start from today, from now. We don't have much time to spare. Absolutely. I mean, that was that was 20 minutes of uh, bad news, basically, not just about the past, but about the future. And exactly what you just said is absolutely valid. So um, I guess the ongoing or sort of moribund peace talks that are being carried out in Geneva and elsewhere regarding Syria are effectively going nowhere, as far as I can tell. Is that true? Um, I wouldn't classify it as such. Um, there is um, a glimpse of opportunity to start moving towards um, uh, some solution. Mm -hmm. The question is, of course, if the big players are still going to uh, maintain a hardline policy of saying, I have to get everything I want or, um, mm -hmm. then we're not going to go anywhere. But uh, there's a an important opportunity. The process in Geneva is uh, naturally not uh, the end all uh, in terms of uh, finalizing a solution for the conflict. But it is a, a stepping stone, and it could be uh, really used as an important mechanism to uh, build trust between Syrians mm -hmm. uh, as well as between international actors uh, to move forward on a solution. Um, it is important at this stage to understand that in this process, not everybody is likely to get everything they wanted. But yeah. if we can at least ensure that everybody will get some of what they wanted, uh, we're probably never going to get into a win-win situation. But hopefully if we can think of no-lose, no-lose situation, we might have a better chance of achieving results. Right. And do you, I mean, oftentimes with conflict around the world, conflicts tend to end when the population simply gets exhausted of the conflict and then they tend to 
in a way, reluctantly, but nonetheless accept, uh, you know, the borders and boundaries of where things ended up at the end of that conflict. And then that forms the basis of the peace negotiation. Then there's a, a, a compromise, series of compromises that take place. And then there's an agreement and hopefully it holds and the, hopefully the fighting stops. Um, given what you've just said for the last 25 minutes, particularly outlining the, the most likely future scenarios, not just for Syria, but for the region more broadly, um, and the real urgency of, of what you just said. I mean, I'm pretty familiar with the region um, and the way you just con- conceptualized of the, of the entire thing is, you know, extremely worrying to everyone who will have heard that message. And to me, it just speaks volumes to the need for a whole new approach um, to the entire region. Um, you know, you can't append the cart too much, but at the same time, a, a sort of uh, locally driven movement that crossed all borders that comprised Iraqis and Iranians and Syrians and Lebanese and even maybe Israelis and, and people from Jordan and, and Egypt and Libya and everywhere else, um, universally recognizing the need for a whole new approach and holding conferences and meetings and really building a, a platform together from the bottom up might at least hold out some hope for um, putting the conditions in place that can prevent the worst outcomes uh, possible from the scenario you, you just outlined. So is something like that even possible now in uh, the Middle East and North Africa region? I mean, could people come together uh, from a local grassroots community level perspective merge their alliances cross all the borders and really try to put out proposals that could um in the end prevent some of the worst outcomes and really try to build up the region in such a way that it reaches the levels of of prosperity and equality and democracy that it surely deserves uh i mean there's a point where of course local communities can exercise some pressure on uh, armed actors or on political governments or political elites. Uh, but uh, that remains to be uh, also uh, uh, kind of put into perspective because uh, very often uh, people in the region have not uh, had a long history of political organizing, uh, nor are aware of how we build uh, this kind of uh, dialogue between local and national uh, level uh, institutions or interests. Um, in places like Syria and Yemen and Libya, the conflicts are no longer local. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, the local agency, whether it's national elites or local communities or militia leaders or whatever, to actually lead such a process is very limited because the conflict drivers for the most part in those countries, are uh, driven from the outside. Um, However, in other places in the region, there's still um, uh, ample opportunity for opening dialogue. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as we are seeing right now in Iraq and in uh, uh, Sudan, in in, uh, Lebanon, sorry, and Algeria, and uh, who knows what other countries soon uh, will join the... uh, the this kind of uh, tumultuous uh, transformation 
there's neither the capacity with national governments to open such a dialogue in earnest, mm-hmm. nor are young people uh, aware of how they can open dialogue. And there's a kind of a tendency to think that any dialogue with the central authorities uh, as a form of treason. They too, have know, completely risky, lost right. trust in central government being able to be uh, an earnest uh, uh, partner for dialogue. Um, and uh, to that extent, uh, uh, we have developed a cult of revolution uh, for revolution's sake. And uh, uh, in a sense, um, this is also uh, an important cultural thing that we have to revisit and uh, reconsider. Revolutions should be tools for objectives, not uh, objectives in themselves. And at this stage, uh, there's um, one of the tools that the national elites are uh, using to usurp this uh, social energy is by uh, rebranding these revolutions um, as the uh, reasons for economic collapse. So rather uh, than um, pretending that the revolutions are happening because of economic collapse, right, right. Uh, national elites have become very masterful at uh, uh, scaremongering their populations into uh, subservience because of what happened in places like Syria and like uh, uh, Yemen and Libya and uh, uh, other places. So in a sense, we are in need of a major dialogue. We need to ensure that we bring the agency back to communities, but that's a two-way street. Um, communities need to develop local leadership and accept that political change can only happen through an emerging leadership that can negotiate and give voice to what they want. Uh, that revolution right. for revolution's sake is not uh, a solution. Um, and at the same time, governments need to understand that business as usual is simply going to drown the whole region uh, into further conflict and collapse. And likewise, the West needs to understand that uh, uh, doing statecraft through economic sanctions and economic pressure is only going to backfire in terms of migration and uh, uh, refugees and terrorism. Uh, back on their own turf. Um, the same message would go also to countries like uh, uh, Russia and uh, uh, other Euro-Asian forces that um, unless we build stability that is built on inclusion, on recognition of human rights and of uh, recognition of uh, community and not just uh, national sovereignty, uh, that uh, we're just breathing the very uh, areas of conflict that will prevent them from building their uh, hope for a Euro-Asian uh, community in the future. Right now, w- one of the issues that hasn't we haven't discussed whatsoever is the you know the issue of Shia versus Sunni, right? So that's how often mm-hmm. in the mass media in the West the conflict in the Middle East is presented. It's all a battle of Sunni versus Shia and Shia versus Sunni. Can you just give a comment on that in terms of how you see that playing a role in leading to conflict? Is it overstated? Is it understated? Can it be resolved, etc.? I mean, ideology and economics have a very weird intertwining history. 
and to a certain extent, we cannot separate uh, issues of uh, Sunni-Shia conflict from grander geopolitical uh, uh, positioning uh, between um, Gulf countries and Iran, between uh, Iran and uh, the West, between uh, Russia, Turkey, uh, as uh, countries that are, uh, and Qatar to a certain extent, that uh, uh, are dependent on gas exports to Europe versus countries that are dependent on oil exports. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent, uh, the the ideological uh, conflict in, in the region is both nurtured by and nurtures uh, the grander geostrategic uh, alignments in the region. And as I have pointed out uh, just a little while ago, if that zero-sum continues to be the main driver um, uh, of politics in the region, we're likely to see everybody think within 10 to 15 years. It's about time that uh, some uh, win-win or no-lose, no-lose approach is developed, and then hopefully we can move away from the edge and slowly rebuild trust um, across the divided communities. There's been a lot of blood spilled. Oh, absolutely. And Way too much. Whether the main, re- whether there's, uh, the main driver is economic or ideological, uh, once blood is spilled, um, there's a, a legacy that's very hard to transcend. Absolutely. And uh, those of us who are working on peace building need to uh, have that in mind. And uh, we need to start building uh, an understanding of each other, um, something I call uh, strategic empathy in the sense of you don't necessarily have to like the other, but you have to understand where they're coming from, understand their fears, understand their hopes understand that they're not much different than your fears and your hopes. Uh, it's something we do on a regular basis in the line of work I'm working with right now, mm-hmm. uh, looking at uh, young and uh, 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 kind of emerging uh, second and third tier uh, activists uh, in the region to transform the language of conflict uh, uh, from one of uh, zero sum uh, to one of understanding how we can eventually uh, find the room to live together. Absolutely. And what do you see as the pathway for that? I mean, you know, I think it's good to remember that, you know, it, it almost sounds hopeless, you know, the scenario you're outlining, because it's virtually every sector of life is going to be negatively affected in the coming years, even over and above what's already happening. And I think it's really important today on the you know, 70th, 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz to remember that Europe and all of the nations within Europe were at each other's throats for hundreds and hundreds of years before they finally saw the light and decided to merge their economies together, open, have an open border policy, form the European Commission, which eventually became the European Union. And now the thought of European countries fighting each other violently at a national level is almost impossible to imagine even after a thousand or more years of it. So, you know, at the very least, let us hope that a similar level of understanding can prevail 
in uh, the entire Middle East. Um, but sounds to me like time is of the essence. I mean, we really need a, a, a series of visionary people out there to come forward and put together scenarios that can prevent the worst outcomes and really prevent, uh, uh, put forward something that's positive and something that ordinary people can really get behind and realize that that more peaceful alternative, that more prosperous alternative um, at all levels is going to benefit uh, far more people than it, than the alternative. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing also at the same time uh, slowly the dismantling of that uh, grander European uh, project built on respect, multilateralism and human rights and uh, uh, we're seeing the emergence of bigotry, of uh, nationalistic discourses, of uh, uh, right-wing um, racism institutionalized in new political parties. Um, Very true. The problems, the problems of the past are, um, they simply don't vanish. And there has to be a constant uh, reworking uh, of the reasons of why we need to avoid that path. Um, unfortunately, uh, at the moment, uh, there's very uh, little uh, uh, agreement on why that project needs to continue uh, and to a certain extent expand beyond the European uh, sphere and develop uh, similar uh, regional and intra-regional uh, 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 and interregional uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, dialogues uh, across the way. Um, I'm not uh, uh, very optimistic about how far we have learned from our history. Mm-hmm. And I think um, we tend to always ideologize history rather than uh, look at it in a critical manner. Uh, we tend to romanticize history, we tend to uh, dramatize it, uh, but we never really self-critically read uh, our uh, local as well as our global history. And one of the things that it would be worthwhile to do is to look at um, revisiting that history, uh, revisiting our own prejudices of how we read uh, our environment and our uh, social realities and how we built our economic uh, prosperity. Um, Europe um, was able to build economic prosperity because of a variety of internal, but also of a variety of external uh, causes. Absolutely, it has a it has a legacy of colonialism that Hundreds has of years. Yeah. built the wealth and the uh, human resources that it has at its disposal today. And they need to understand that um, unless um, they move uh, those privileges to include others around them, that uh, soon um, conflicts are going to fire back at uh, their prosperity and on their uh, uh, self-imposed boundaries and borders. I'm not sure if there's anybody listening uh, at this stage, but uh, those of us who are uh, working uh, across the globe should uh, really start connecting our efforts and understand that we are 
living on uh, one pond, one big pond. Well, you know, that's, of course, the, the point of view that we have that guides everything that we do, which is, you know, the reason the world is the way it is is because that's what 7.8 billion people have decided it ultimately to be. And it really can come down to the particular worldview that people have across the world. And, you know, our quest always would be to increase the numbers of those who truly see the world as one single unified solitary entity on which every single one of us is entirely dependent. And when we finally reach that stage or even just five or 10% of us, I think we'll be in a far better position to, you know, push the ball forward in a positive manner that can truly bring about what, for instance, the sustainable development goals speak of and the human rights treaties speak of and the UN charter um, speaks of, but even go beyond those and create a world whereby it's second nature to see all humans everywhere else as part of one shared human family and people who have had the good fortune to travel the world like you and I have and to work on humanitarian issues like you and I have. Um, we're extremely fortunate for having had those experiences because it brings that worldview very clearly into sharp relief very quickly. And it's very, very obvious what, you know, the more places one goes, the more people one meets, the more easy it is to see the similarities instead of focus, focus on the differences. And, you know, we're really of the view that we've come to this point in 2020 whereby, you know, every single square meter of planet Earth has been mapped. Um, you know, much of the ocean has been mapped. Uh, we have technology that can put people in contact with one another at a moment's notice in, you know, every corner of the globe. We've, we've really made tremendous progress in many ways. We shouldn't forget the, the progress that we have made. But at the same time, the stumbling blocks and the obstacles uh, that have been presented to us because of decisions made in history and because of decisions made by contemporary leaders, uh, largely more than their populations, have led us to a really precarious point. And, you know, I'd love to hear some final thoughts of yours on how you see the question of citizenship and ultimately world citizenship contributing to preventing some of those horrible outcomes that you mentioned and, and, and where you see things going in, in, in that regard. Uh, it's very hard in the midst of all the bad news we have heard since the beginning of the year and for the last two months or three months um, across the globe to imagine some glimpses of hope uh, these days. I mean, everything from outbreaks of the coronavirus to uh, fires in Australia to economic collapse in Lebanon to mm -hmm. increased and uh, reinvigoration of fighting in Syria to um, uh, the rise of populism and right-wing uh, uh, racist uh, tendencies in Western politics to abuse of human rights <laughs> across many uh, areas in the region to understand where hope would be created. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus my last comments on a personal note. 
Uh, yes. Over the last uh, three and a half years or so, uh, I've been working with um, uh, supporting a dialogue um, that is um, uh, a parallel process to the negotiations taking place in uh, Geneva. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the special envoy for Syria decided that he wants to bring in civil society and women into the table and bring uh, some uh, voices from the ground to uh, uh, match uh, the political voices and to kind of bring uh, uh, community voices to the table. I've been privileged to be a facilitator for the Women's Advisory Board that was created. And mm-hmm. I've seen the courage of um, women um, to come together from across the conflict line, mm-hmm. from across the political, ideological, economic, uh, geographical boundaries, and to be able to find the humanity in each other and uh, work together on promoting ideas that could support the political process. I think it's precisely that kind of courage uh, that very often uh, men lack, but uh, I've seen with these brave women uh, that we need. We need to look at the world afresh. Uh, We need to be able to put our differences aside and understand that unless we work together, we're not going to move anywhere. I have hope in bringing people face to face and on working with them to find solutions to their problems. Top-down solutions will only go so far. And at the end of the day, it's us regular citizens coming together uh, face-to-face, being brave enough to accept that we have to be with each other, live with each other, uh, being brave to understand that the world is neither elite nor uh, men nor uh, privileged ethnicities, but the world is human beings, and the world is only savable if we all come together and work hand in hand. Absolutely. Well, that's a, a perfect way to end our conversation today uh, with Omar Abdel Aziz Halaj. And so, thank you so much, um, Aziz, for that discussion. And I hope thank th- you. The next time we speak. Maybe we'll have some more uh, positive news to report um, in the world. And, oh, you know, just before I end, you know, another uh, sort of uh, tragic coincidence of today is that I suppose you heard about the famous American basketball player Kobe Bryant was killed earlier today. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Do you know who that is? Have you heard of him? It brought brought, uh, some bad memories of our dear friend, uh, Dillard Fisca that uh, brought us together. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So it's a a Uh, sad coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, we remember uh, Sillard today and we also remember Kobe Bryant. And people like Dillard who believed in the good in people. Absolutely. And, you know, even though the the stories you were outlining today and and your prognosis for the future was quite... Uh, harrowing, we do need to remember that there are millions upon millions upon millions of extremely good human beings out there on our planet today. And, you know, we need to all come together 
and continue to push further and further um, towards the more beautiful future that we all know is within our grasp if we make the right decisions. And it matters not if we are from Latin America or Africa or the Middle East or Eastern Europe or China or Australia or Europe or anywhere. Um, ultimately, at our core, we are essentially uh, the same. And we can reach that positive point, and we really need to um, if our wholly unique species uh, is to continue not just for 50 more years, but for 50,000 and beyond. So with that, thank you so much again. Go ahead, Aziz. Uh, nothing. I said, indeed, um, thank you very much for having me and uh, being part of this podcast. Uh, it's a real privilege.